This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance upon our study. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, it's your word that tells us what truth is, not our experience, not our reason, but we use our reason and experience under your authority of your word, and it is your word that defines our experience for us. Father, we recognize that when we are studying about the Lord, that we are dealing with a unique situation, a unique period in history. Because our Lord came for a specific mission, not simply the mission to go to the cross and die for our sins, but his initial mission was to offer the kingdom to Israel. We see the consequences of that rejection, and we see similar consequences throughout history and in nations as well as individuals who reject the extension of your grace in their lives, and we pray that we might not repeat that error. Father, we pray that as we do study these things that you might challenge us with their implications for our own lives. For too often we're like the disciples who were criticized by the Lord for not having enough faith, not really trusting in you. And, Father, we pray that you might increase our faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Now, we're starting this next little section in Matthew 8 and 9 to focus that focuses upon the credentials of the Messiah. It's so important to understand what is going on in Matthew. It's like anything else, and I've stated these things over and over again, that when we stumble into the middle of a conversation or we open up a book or we look at a letter and we start in the middle that we can often misunderstand what is being talked about or what is being said simply because we haven't read the whole thing and we don't understand the the framework, the background, the purpose, the intent of whatever it is we're reading or whatever it is that we are hearing. The same often and frequently, sadly, happens in Scripture. It's a fallacy we see often today because people do not understand hermeneutics, basic biblical principles of interpretation, and that we are to interpret the Bible literally. And that does not exclude figures of speech, but we are to understand it literally. We understand it in terms of its historical background, its historical context, and in light of the purpose of each author. And like good literature, any good literature, every epistle, every book of the Bible has a purpose. And the writer chooses under the leadership of God the Holy Spirit 
what he's going to include and what he is going to exclude in order to substantiate his basic point, his basic argument, his basic thesis. And as I've said many times, the basic thesis of Matthew is to present Jesus in terms of his messianic credentials from the Old Testament. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. He is writing to a Jewish audience some uh, 20 years or so after the crucifixion of Christ to encourage them in their faith, basically answering the question that, yes, Jesus indeed was the Messiah. He came offering the kingdom. You may be wondering why it doesn't seem like the kingdom is here, and that is because it was rejected by Israel, it's postponed, but so we're living in an interim period now in the church age that still anticipates the future coming of the kingdom when the king comes the second time at the end of the tribulation period to establish his, uh, his kingdom. So Matthew is writing that. He's writing, uh, he's not writing a biography of Jesus. He's writing to substantiate that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, what we see when we look at a little broader perspective of of Matthew is after we get out of the birth and infancy descriptions in the first three chapters, the starting in Matthew chapter 4, the focus is on the beginning of of, of Jesus' ministry. And we see his baptism by John the Baptist at the end of chapter 3. And Matthew chapter 4, we have the temptation and the calling of his disciples. He's arranging this material according to his, his subject matter, according to the theme. He's not giving us a chronology of these events. So he's taking events from different periods of Christ's ministry, and he's putting them together as a way of listing certain types of of evidence of who he is. So he calls his disciples, and then Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount very early. It probably took place a little later in his ministry, but he puts the Sermon on the Mount early because the Sermon on the Mount, as we saw, it was a training message for his disciples. He's going to send his disciples out when we get finished with this section in Matthew 10 to... Uh, proclaim the message that John the Baptist has already proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a message that is focused on that Jewish audience. They, they, they weren't told what the kingdom was because they didn't have to. They knew the Torah. They knew all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises that God would usher in a glorious age in the future for Israel where Jerusalem would be the center of worship for the entire world and that the son of David called the Messiah, the anointed one in the Old Testament, would rule and reign from his throne, the throne of David in Jerusalem. It was a literal kingdom that where Jesus sat on a literal throne uh, in literal Jerusalem. It wasn't some uh, spiritual kingdom that is in heaven where Jesus is somehow ruling uh, from the throne of God. That wasn't what they thought. It was a very literal, earth-based, geopolitical kingdom. And so Jesus now comes on the scene after the preparation by John the Baptist, who proclaimed this message. Then Jesus appears as the king, offering himself to Israel. His, his message is the same as John's, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because 
the Israelites had rejected the law. They were involved in either legalism on the one hand or skepticism on the other hand. And Jesus is saying, you have to turn back to God. It's a message that is grounded, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the promise of God that after they're being scattered among the nations, that if they would turn back to God, that's the key word, turn. That's what repent means. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. It doesn't mean to uh, get all emotional about your sins. It doesn't mean to be overwhelmed uh, by your sins. It means simply to turn, to change your mind. It's a, it's a mental word, metanoeo. And so they're to change their mind, they're to refocus, as it were. For some people, that would mean they need to get justified, they need to trust in God for their salvation. For the vast majority, they were already justified, they were in disobedience, they needed to turn to God in obedience and to worship him and him alone. So this is going to be the message that Jesus gives the disciples. It's the message that they're to take out. So he has to train them in that message. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Then at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew puts these two chapters in here, uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, in order to give the credentials of the Messiah to show that he is who he claimed to be. And the first set of miracles that we have in Matthew chapter 8 were miracles of healing. They're followed by a brief interlude where Jesus is interrupted by two men who are disciples, and there's a string of these in these sections, and we'll tie that together at the end. And then Jesus leaves Capernaum, and he is going to cross the uh, Sea of Galilee over to the other side, and in these events, there, and then he's going to come back, and there are three uh, miracles of power, miracles of power that... Matthew brings together. Now, they didn't necessarily happen in this order. He's not saying that. He's just marshalling them in his evidence. Well, how do you know Jesus is a Messiah? Well, he did these three miracles of healing. Boom, boom, boom. Now he's doing these three miracles showing his power. Boom, boom, boom. And then he's going to do three more miracles as we come to the, uh, come to the end of the, uh, of the section, uh, that are miracles related to restoration. So we have to understand this is what's driving Matthew is that we have to understand who Jesus is because once we understand who he is, it, it embedded within that understanding is a response and that response is to become a disciple of Jesus, someone who really seeks to learn the Word of God, apply it in their life, and grow to spiritual maturity. That's why Matthew uh, inserts within each of these three different sets of miracles this charge or something about being a disciple, and it leads to the final final statement that there is a need for workers and a need for disciples in, in the field of the Lord. So what we're looking at here as we begin this next little section, is on the power of Jesus. These are miracles of power, and the first one emphasizes what we call the faith rest drill. I thought we would get more into the second one, but there's so much here that we'll take a little time just to focus on this stilling of the storm in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. So what we see here under the miracles of power, are three basic miracles. First of all, Jesus will still the storm on the Sea of Galilee. 
Second, Jesus will cast out demons from the two demon-possessed men after he crosses over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then third, he will heal a paralyzed man who is brought to him in order to demonstrate that he has the power and the authority uh, to forgive sins. So in this first episode, where Jesus stills the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he demonstrates his authority and his power over the forces of creation. He is showing that he is the creator God who sustains and controls creation. As such, as the Messiah, he will reverse the damage of sin to the environment, to creation, to nature, when he establishes his kingdom. He's giving foretastes. He's giving previews of coming attractions in all of these different miracles. This is what will happen when the kingdom comes. What's his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're not prepared and ready, then he's not going to bring in the kingdom. And so the people rejected him, so the kingdom was postponed. None of these things came into being. So he's giving that foretaste. In the second uh Miracle of power here. Jesus will demonstrate his authority and power over Satan and the fallen angels, the demons, demonstrating that he has the power to deliver the creation from the control of Satan, who is called in the scripture the prince and the power of the air in Ephesians 2 2, the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4 4, and the ruler of this world in uh, John 12 31. Jesus will not remove Satan from this world until he returns at the end of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 19 at the end and Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 describe the fact that Satan will be thrown into the abyss where he is bound for a thousand years. But until then, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, he goes about like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. And so Jesus demonstrates that that he has the authority and power to control Satan and the demons, and he shows this in all of these episodes where he is uh, casting out demons, that's showing his authority over the fallen angels and over Satan. But if the people don't accept him, then that's not going to happen until the kingdom comes in. Third, Jesus shows that he has the divine prerogative to forgive sins. He has the authority and the power to forgive sins, which will be a hallmark of his messianic reign. So each of these must be understood in terms of that kingdom proclamation. So let's look at this first particular uh, episode. Here Jesus demonstrates his authority and power over the forces of creation to show, first of all, that he's the creator God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 emphasizes this, that by him... And through him, all things exist. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't happen because there was an accidental electrical discharge on a piece of protoplasm and somehow life came from uh, um, that which was not life or organic matter developed from inorganic matter that that it was just accidental and that we're just all cosmic accidents. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God has a plan and a purpose from the very beginning and that he created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in six literal 24-hour consecutive days. 
and that this is, he is the creator. And, and Jesus Christ, secondly, is the one who sustains and controls creation. That's the second thing that we see here, as uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 teaches, that he, he holds the world together. He sustains everything. By him, everything continues. And that there is absolutely nothing that human beings can do to destroy, ultimately destroy the environment. We may mess it up pretty bad. We may trash it. And there have been peoples down through the, through the generations and down through the centuries that have trashed the environment. And it is part of the fact that we are sinners. That's not justifying it, but ultimately Jesus Christ is the one who controls and sustains everything. And so we're not on a path of environmental uh, self-destruction. The third thing that Jesus demonstrates from all of this is that he as Messiah will reverse the damage of sin on creation. See, the real problem isn't the industrial revolution. The real problem isn't greenhouse gases. Uh, the real problem isn't CO2 in the atmosphere. Read the literature. CO2 is good. That's what makes plants grow. They feed on CO2. That's what made Greenland green back when they called it Greenland. Now it would be called Whiteland because it's frozen. So there's been some, there's been climate change. But that climate change is not the result of, of human energy. The Vikings did not have an overabundance of engines and uh, gasoline-powered engines and diesel-powered engines, and they weren't using coal-powered uh, energy plants, throwing off all of these uh, chemicals into the atmosphere to bring about uh, the, the uh, end of their age. So that makes a huge, huge difference. So... Jesus Christ is in control. He's the one who will reverse the damage of sin. It's Adam's sin that caused all the environmental problems. It's not man. I mean, we can't even touch it today, touch what Adam did today because he's already done the worst, the worst damage. And so we come to understand who Jesus is in this episode. Now, one of the major implications is that Jesus has the power to, to calm the storm. This is a radical storm. This was probably not just a normal storm on the Sea of Galilee. There were a lot of really bad storms on the Sea of Galilee, as I'll point out. But uh, this one was probably one of the most intense, and he instantly calms it. When he says, be quiet, he doesn't say peace. It's not shalom. It's not arenes in, in the Greek. It is a word that means to be quiet. Instantly it became quiet. Now, we all know that if you've ever been out and witnessed a storm or if you've just gotten in the bathtub and you slosh the water around and you stop sloshing, it takes a little while for it to calm down. This was radical. Instantly everything was flat. Instantly the sun burst forth, the sky was blue, and the storm clouds went away. It was an immediate response to his command as the Lord of the universe. And so the implication for that is that just as as Jesus stilled that physical storm, so he has the ability to bring peace and tranquility and calm uh, instantly into our lives, no matter what the storm of life may be that we face. The issue that is pointed out here ultimately is do we have faith to trust in him? Faith is not simply a matter of somehow ginning up some power within us. Faith is not a power. 
There are those who teach in the so-called health and wealth movement that faith is, is, is a power. That is a distortion of language. Faith is simply believing and trusting in something, having confidence that something is true and relying upon it as, as we will see. Now, this event takes place on the Sea of Galilee. The parallel passages to Matthew chapter uh, chapter 8 here are found in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, which I read uh, as the scripture reading this morning, and then Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Each of those gives a little different information. It's all complementary. There are no contradictions in the scripture, but each one from their vantage point selects the, from the available data, what he wants to include in order to substantiate the kind of points that he is making. What we see if we look back to verse 18 of Matthew 8 is the statement, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, he's interrupted there, and that's what takes place in verses 19 to 22, when there's two, two disciples that come to him with questions. But then they're going to finally get into the boat in verse uh, 23, and they will proceed across the lake. Now, here's a map to just sort of orient you. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee, also called by some other names in Scripture, uh, Capernaum, where they're located, is up here on the uh, north-northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. They're going to get into the boat, and they are going to make their way across the Sea of Galilee down to the area that is on the east side of the coast near uh, Gergesa. And we'll get into that more next time when we deal with the two demoniacs that are located over there. But they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and it's quite a large body of water. It is 13 miles long and between 5 and 8 miles in width. At the And so they're crossing it on the diagonal, so they're probably going to be traveling uh, a distance close to 8 miles as they move across. It's 32 miles in circumference. At its deepest point, it is approximately 150 to 160 feet. I've read numerous articles. Nobody has the same number. It's all located somewhere between 150, 180 feet in depth. It is actually 630 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Uh, in the scripture, it is given a number of different names. It's called the Sea of Kinnereth. In Old Testament passages, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret, which is the same form you just soften a couple of the consonants. The Lake of Gennesaret in Luke 5.1, it's called the Sea of Tiberias in John chapter 6, and it's called the Sea of Galilee. You Calling it a sea is a bit of a misnomer. Sea is a term that refers to a saltwater lake, not a freshwater lake, but uh King James and early English translators didn't understand that difference in the in the uh, Greek word has thalasso, and it can refer to either a freshwater lake or a saltwater lake. So in English, sea refers to saltwater. It should have been a lake like it is called in Luke 5.21, the, leak, leak, the lake of Gennesaret. Gennesar is located near the... Uh, 
Capernaum, right down here, uh, Gennesar, there is a kibbutz there where they have a museum where they've located what they call the Jesus boat. This is a remarkable thing. Many of you who have gone to Israel with me have gone here. We're actually going to stay at this kibbutz for uh, a couple of nights on, on this trip. And this was dug up from the, had been buried. It's a first century fishing boat that was buried at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And during an excessive drought in the late 80s, when the water receded, they discovered this. And they had a very short window of time to uh, bring it out of the mud. And it was a, it's a fascinating story because they had to pull it all out as soon as it would hit the air. The reason it was preserved was it had been preserved from exposure to oxygen. So they had to figure out how to get this thing out of the water, out of the mud very quickly without breaking it apart and keeping it in some sort of oxygen free, uh, uh, environment as quick and or get it to one as quickly as they could in order to treat it and preserve it. But it gives you an idea that these were not exceptionally large vessels. They're very small. So when you're faced with, with anywhere from five to eight foot seas, it's easy to see how it, they might capsize and would take in a tremendous uh, amount of, of water. Now in verse 24, we read, And suddenly a great tempest arose upon the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. Uh, But he was asleep. Now, as we look at this, we see that the events occurred at the end of the day according to the Gospel of Mark, who says when evening had come. Jesus had given them instructions to depart to the other side in Matthew 8:18, but he's interrupted, and then finally they get aboard the vessel and head out. According to Mark, this wasn't the only uh, boat that went out onto the onto the lake. He got into the boat with his disciples, but there were others in the crowd who got into other boats to follow him. And while they were sailing, according to Luke 8:23. Uh, while they were sailing, Jesus fell asleep. He just took a nap. This indicates his humanity. He would grow tired. Many times I've mentioned he grows weary. He hungered uh, during this 40 days of fasting. He thirsted uh, on the cross. He said, I thirst. This indicates that he had a physical human body, and he was subject to all of the travails of being in mortal flesh. He was a human being. And so after a long day of ministry, he found that there was a pillow in the stern where the uh, where he curled up and relaxed and immediately fell asleep. Now, do you think that was an accident? you think this just sort of happened that way? I don't think so. I think what happens is that, that Jesus is fully aware of what is going to happen, and he's It's a teaching moment in the life of his disciples. He brings the same kind of teaching moments into your life and mine. Suddenly we're hit with an unexpected storm. It may be financial. It may be uh, family-related. It may be health-related. It may be career-related. And all of a sudden, everything that we thought would happen, everything that we hoped to happen, just disappears. It's gone. I have a friend from college who one day came home and his house had burnt to the ground. It so devastated him, a man who should have had some doctrine but didn't, that he's never been the same since. He, we not only have all of our hopes and dreams that some situations can destroy, 
But when we have a situation like that where everything that we have, all of our memories, all of our family treasures, all of our photos, suddenly is burned up and destroyed, we not only lose hopes and dreams, but we lose our past. And it was devastating to him. There are things in life that are huge issues that challenge us, but there are some that are enormous. And some people just never, ever recover from those things. But we have a God who's in control of those circumstances. They just don't happen to us by chance. That's one of the things we need to learn when we encounter trauma in our life is that God is in control. We may, and it's not that he is blameworthy of those things, but he has allowed that to occur in our life to test us, to train us, to teach us to be dependent upon him and not to focus on our hopes and dreams as the source of meaning and purpose in our life. And sometimes the Lord has to take those things away from us to get our attention so that we will focus upon him and the mission that he has given us in this life. And so these storms come up. And they shake us to our very core. That's the word that's used here for tempest is the word from which we get uh, seismograph or seismology or seismic is the word seismos in the Greek that means to shake. It's a word that describes earthquakes or a shakedown, a financial shakedown like an extortion. It is something that radically shakes a person's life in terms of the adversity that we can face. So here it's describing an incredible storm. Now, the Sea of Galilee, let me just back up a couple of slides here and put this map up here. The Sea of Galilee is located here and about uh, 25 miles, 30 miles to the northeast is the highest point in Israel. It's Mount Hermon. In English, it's Mount Hermon. In Mount Hermon. And all of this area that you can see on this uh, topographical map over here to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee is rather rugged, and that is called the Golan Heights. And if you're over here on the western side of the Sea of Galilee and you look across to the eastern side, and you can just see a couple of little marks and indications here along the east coast of the Sea of Galilee, it rises rapidly about 800 or 1,000 feet on the other side. That's why this is so important militarily. It's the high ground, and back before 1967, the Syrian army had their artillery stationed over there, and so the, the, remember the Sea of Galilee is about 8 to 11 miles wide, and they were f- randomly firing artillery shells across the Sea of Galilee, landing in Tiberias and all the uh, Israeli towns and villages on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. So what happens topographically is storms will come come in very suddenly and those air masses will come across the mountains to the north and they will hit uh, Mount Hermon and then as those air masses drop with that elevation drop down into this bowl of the Sea of Galilee that remember it's about 600 feet below sea level that it can hit in that bowl and swirl up very suddenly and you just have a massive storm on your hands when you didn't expect it you put out from from uh, the shore and you're out in the middle of of the uh, of the water and all of a sudden this gale comes up and this was one that was uh, e- extraordinary. They have a term, a special term for these storms in the uh, Arabic. They call them sharkias. 
It's the word for east because it comes out of the east. So it started off as a very normal day, very quiet day. Sun was out, sky was blue, Jesus is relaxed, goes to sleep. And then all of a sudden, within a matter of probably 10, 15 minutes, this storm comes up that is overwhelming the boat. They're taking on water. Uh, they're covered with waves. There are various descriptions of this that are given uh, by the other writers of Scripture. Mark says that the waves beat into the boat so that it began to fill. Luke adds that they were in jeopardy, losing, using a Greek word meaning that they were in danger. And he uses an imperfect tense with the verb showing that this is a continuous action. It intensifies the situation. So the boat begins to rock back and forth violently as it's tossed around. Everything is out of control. The, the disciples are hanging on for dear life to keep from being thrown out. Fear grips their souls. Panic is setting in. The Lord's still asleep. He's just, he's just out. And so they run to him and they wake him up. And they, they, if you read the parallel passages, Luke says that they called him ma- a word that means master or chief. It's the word epistates. Uh, Matthew says that they called him Lord, curios. Mark says they called him didaskalos, teacher. Is this a contradiction in Scripture? No, you've got probably seven or eight disciples. He may not have all 12 with him, but even if he has all 12 with him, they're all crying out different things. One may be calling him teacher. One may be calling him master. One may be calling him Lord. And they're all saying different things. So when you compare what these writers are saying, you get a full picture of of the pandemonium that was taking place as different ones were calling out different things. Uh, they were they challenged him and they were asking him basically three things. First of all, do you not care that we are perishing? You're just sleeping. He doesn't care. Don't you care? Wake up, do something. Second thing they said, according to Matthew eight in this passage, Lord save us. Here's the use of the word sozo. Where saved doesn't mean saved from eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Lord, save us. We are perishing. That's the same word that's used in John 3.16, that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we won't perish but have everlasting life. But here, perishing is not eternal perishing. It is temporal perishing. It is being overwhelmed by the disaster at hand. Luke tells us they said, Master, Master, we are perishing, using the same word that that Matthew does in Luke chapter 8. So there's pandemonium. They're calling upon the Lord, turning to him for aid because they think that he can uh, 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 give them rescue, and he takes three actions. First thing is that he arose. He woke up, he got up, and he arose, and he looks to them, and he The second thing that he does is he points out their lack of faith as the real issue. This is in Matthew 8, verse 26. He said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? They're not trusting in him. He's not saying, oh, they just have faith as a mustard seed and they have to have more. This is a figure of speech. He's really saying, as we use the same kind of idiom, that they don't have any faith. They're not trusting in him. They're in panic. When you're fearful, you can't be trusting. You're either trusting in the Lord or you're afraid, one or the other. You're not both. Faith casts out fear. So 
Uh, he's pointing out that their lack of faith is the real issue. This was a faith test. We run into lots of faith tests in life. And this was a, this was a faith test to see whether they would trust in him and the fact that they're fearful and they're, uh, hitting the panic button shows that they are not trusting, uh, trusting in him. So the third thing he does is he rebukes the wind. He rebukes the wind. Now what's interesting about this is this word is a word that often means to censure somebody, to correct somebody, to voice disapproval. It's a personal kind of, kind of term. He almost personalizes uh, the storm when he rebukes it. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what he says, but Mark does, and it's translated in the King James as peace be still, but it, like I pointed out earlier, it's not the word arenes for peace. It's the word that basically means to shut up, basically means hush, be quiet, and instantly everything became quiet. I mean, that's a miracle. There's no uh, re, you know, residual action of re- wave action. It doesn't take uh, 15 minutes or so for the, everything to calm down. It's just instant. And so what we see the response of the, of the men, they marveled. They're astonished. They've never seen anything like this. That he, he, that here he is in the seat, in the back of the boat and he just controls everything. And that's the point that he's making is that as the Messiah, he has the authority and the power to control creation. And that if he is accepted as the Messiah, he will bring in a kingdom and the curse will be partially rolled back, the curse that has plunged creation under this particular curse. Now, he brings out the point, the real issue here, when he says, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? He then arises, according to Matthew, he stands up, rebukes the wind and the seas, and there's a great calm. In the parallel passages in Mark and in Luke, they emphasize what he said afterwards, where he addresses the issue of their faith again. So that's the point. Are they trusting in him? Now, as we look at this passage, we see that there are basically three doctrines, three areas of application, three areas of instruction that we need to focus upon. The first is understanding the omnipotence of God. Omnipotence means that God is all-powerful. Now, we always hear from skeptics that say, well, can God make a a three-sided square or a four-sided triangle? And they always come up with these silly little things that, that say, well, God can't do the impossible. Well, God created things a certain way, and reality functions a certain way in the mind of God, and he doesn't violate those kinds of things. But what omnipotence means is God is able to do whatever he intends to do. God is all-powerful. There is nothing more powerful than God so that he is in control of everything within his creation. Not even sin or Satan can overpower or overwhelm God. He is all-powerful. So it's always important when we think through a problem when we face some surprising adversity in life, whether it's large or small, and frankly, we all know that sometimes we probably uh, fail most in our spiritual lives when we face some minor little thing that comes at the end of a long day and we're tired and we just absolutely lose it when some minor little thing takes place. 
But often there are very large things that happen that, that shake us to our very core. And it takes time. We have to understand as Christians that, that we don't always handle every test perfectly. And some tests cannot be handled that perfectly. We're human beings. If, take the illustration I used earlier. If you were to come home from work one day, and you were to find that your house had burned to the ground. You, your hard drive is fried. You can't access any of your personal information, all of your papers, your insurance papers, everything burned to a crisp. Everything is gone. All your memories, all the pictures of your kids, all the pictures of you and your husband or your wife when you got married, everything is gone. Absolutely. So... You can say, well, God's in control. But as you go forward in life, there's going to be things that you have to deal with for years because of that fire. And emotionally, that's going to be turbulent, and it's going to be tough, and it's going to be, be rugged. And there are going to be times when we're, we, you, you, in a, spiritually and emotionally, you're just vibrating. You, one minute you're trusting God, the next second you're not. And and it may be six or eight months before you really deal with, with the consequences. It's sort of like if I walked up to you uh, with my cowboy boots on and kicked you in the shin as hard as I could, it takes time for that pain to diminish. And when we hit certain things in life, it takes time for things to stabilize. We're not machines. We're not computers. We don't just turn around and say, okay, uh, Isaiah forty thirty one. I'm not going to be fearful. I'm just going to trust God, and it just stabilizes like that right away. It takes time, primarily because the t- if that fire test occurred in your life, it was because that fire test is going to rock you to your soul. I might not have ever happened in my life. What happens in my life might be a financial disaster. It might be a health crisis, something like that, because God tends to tailor our tests for the areas where we're the weakest. And so that exhibits itself, and it takes time. And the way to handle this is to go to the, go to the attributes of God and just work our way through them and, and think about how they apply. So in this case, it's God's omnipotence. He is more powerful than the storms of life. Many passages in Scripture emphasize this. I'm just going to put a few up on the screen. These are some great passages you might want to memorize at times. Psalm 6211, God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. It's part of his core essence. Psalm 7911, let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. You, capitalized, mean God. The psalmist is talking about God. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die. In other words, those may, that may be surrounded by death, like in Psalm 23, going through the valley of the shadow of death, God is the one who preserves us by his power. Psalm 65.6 6 says, "...who established the mountains by his strength, clothed with power." Everything that we look at in the creation is from the omnipotence of God. So nothing that comes in creation can be greater than the power of God. Psalm 63, 1 and 2. O God, you are my God, the psalmist says. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. He must have been down in the Negev. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary. Why? To see your power and your glory. 
And then Paul says in Romans 1.20 that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the first major doctrine that comes out of this is God's omnipotence. The second is God's grace. This is Christ is demonstrating his graciousness to deliver the disciples from the horrible storm that occurred. This is God's grace. It's his unmerited favor in our lives. And in God's grace, he's provided the solution for every problem in our life. The root problem of all the other problems is sin. And he solved the greatest problem we'll ever face at the cross. So that if Jesus Christ can solve our problem of sin, then it's nothing for him to solve all the other problems. Whatever it is that you're facing in life, it's not as great as that that horrible sin penalty that Christ solves. So storms and adversities, loss, all of the things that we face in life are the consequences of Adam's original sin, and Jesus solved that problem so he can get us through the little bumps and grinds and speed bumps that we see in our life. The third major doctrine that comes out of this is the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill is simple. It involves three things. First of all, we claim a promise. That means you have to have a promise in your head. You need to get the little book that we have on on promises, and you need to memorize some promises so when the tough times come, you have something to grab hold of in your head. When Jesus went through his temptation in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness, he wasn't just saying, well, there's a theological principle here according to Chafer volume 3. He's quoting chapter and verse. He's quoting specific scripture. So when people say, oh, I really don't know the scripture, I can't ever remember those verses, whatever it is, you know, are you better than Jesus? We claim a promise, we grab hold of it, and we mix it with faith, and we think it through in terms of what is this verse saying? We take a verse like casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Well, well, what does that mean? And you go, go to, go to 1 Peter 5, 7, and you look at the previous verse, and it says that we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. How do we do that? By casting our cares upon Him because He cares for you. It's telling us how we demonstrate humility or grace orientation. So we have to look at the context, go read those verses, think them through. And as you do that, you arrive at certain doctrinal conclusions about how God cares for you and how God can take care of you and provide for you. When we look at Scripture, especially in the area of fear, and that's the basic problem here and the core problem we all face, we have to go to God because he's the only one who can solve the fear problem. Genesis 3.10, we find that the first emotion expressed by Adam and Eve as a result of the fall was fear. Fear. When they heard God, they were afraid. Notice this is kind of what happens here with the disciples when... They hear what what happens when Jesus does this in one of the parallel passages in Mark, I believe it says, they were afraid. In Matthew it says they marveled. But fear was there. That that that's related. It's it's awe, it's amazement, but there's a certain certain fear there as uh, as they realize the power of Jesus. That's what Adam and Eve experienced. Kierkegaard called it, and other existentialists, basically the core of our existence. Every human being is born fearful because we're sinners. That's the core emotional sin of our our sin nature. 1 John 4.18 says there's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. The Bible juxtaposes love with fear, not love and hate. 
That seems strange to us. We think, well, the opposite of love is hate, but biblically the opposite of love is fear. And our normal state is living on the sin nature. We're, we're fearful. But it's only when we come face to face with the love of God and that's real in our life that the fear is conquered. So John concludes that verse by saying, he who fears has not, be, has not been made perfect or is not matured in love. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of our righteousness. We need to memorize promises like that so that we, when we wake up in the middle of the night and we realize that, that we failed to do something or that something might happen and suddenly uh, we're gripped with fear and panic, we can claim those promises. When we worry, we can claim promises like Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But that is only ours if we're first and foremost a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says that the way to deal with the fear first is to deal with the, the, the cause of the fear, and that is sin. We have to trust in Christ as Savior with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to trust in you, to think about what it means to trust you, what it means to have faith, that it means to trust in who you are and what you're able to do and what you have revealed to us in your word. And, Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the examples in your word. We're thankful for that which you teach us and instruct us in your word, how you have revealed yourself to us as the omnipotent creator God who is greater than any situation, any circumstance that we might face in life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they can take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty in full. There's nothing more that you can do. All that is required is to believe, to trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus died for every sin in human history. No sin was left unpaid for. There's no sin too great for the grace of God. And this is a free gift that is yours simply by faith, trusting him. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. In Christ's name, amen.